0: morning, brothers and sisters. Today's Bible reading is Genesis 16, starting at verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram had been living in Canaan ten years. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. So she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child. And you will have a son. You, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer-Lahai-Roy, which it is still there, between Kadesh and Beret. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you for reading that passage, Jeremy, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Let us come to uh, God's word in prayer because it's a very unusual passage. Uh, Lord our God... As your people this morning, we thank you that you have spoken to us in many and various ways and in these last days by your son, Jesus. And Lord, you speak to us in your word, your living word. We pray that you would speak to us this very day through this passage of Genesis chapter 16, that we might know you better and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a story this morning. Once upon a time there was a farmer who was impatient with his crops and he wondered how to speed up the process of growing the plants. Why must I wait so long for my crops to mature and ripen? Every year I have to plant the seeds, water them, weed them and protect them from all kinds of pests. If only I could speed things up, I could save myself so much time and bother. Well, do you want to know what that impatient farmer did? He said, I know what I'll do. I'll force my plants to grow an extra inch a day and soon they'll be ready for harvest. So he went out and started to help his plants to grow by pulling them up an extra inch a day with his own hands. Not a good idea. This is an old Chinese saying about a foolish farmer. And the moral of the story is that some things can't be rushed. The impatient farmer ruined his crops by pulling them up with his own hands in an effort to make them grow faster. But some things can't be rushed. Like God's timing, for example. I mean, sometimes you just have to be patient because you can't rush God. But guess guess what? I mean, sometimes... Isn't it true that we actually do want to rush God? Don't you ever want to give God a nudge or even a push? Don't you ever want to give him a bit of a hurry up? Well, that's what happened to Sarai and Abram in their old age. Sarai was running out of time. Very soon, if not already, she would find it impossible as a woman to conceive a child, humanly speaking. And then what would become of God's promise to Abram? Could there be another way of achieving our goal of parenthood? In her old age, Sarai became increasingly impatient with God to the point where she felt that she had to give God a push. She had to do something to make God's promises become a reality. So she gave her Egyptian maid Hagar to Abram as a surrogate birthing mother. I want to ask you, ladies, if you're married, can you imagine giving your own husband into the arms of a younger woman? How do you think this is going to turn out? I've seen some Renaissance artwork where this scene of Sarai, the older woman, handing Hagar, the young maid, over into the arms of Abram. There are paintings of this scene. And I have to say, every painting I've looked at is disturbing. You've got a wrinkly 85-year-old man about to embrace a milky-skinned younger woman while Sarai watches on. It's very wrong. And yet that's basically what happened. And the result of Sarai's foolishness and Abram's, might I say, all too willing compliance is the birth of a wild donkey of a man whose errant behaviour is still affecting our world today in the politics of the Middle East. Israel and the Arab states have been perpetually at war with one another over thousands of years and it starts here in Sarai's folly and Abram's acquiescence. Also, today's passage raises what I think is one of the most delicate and deeply felt issues that young families have to deal with. Yes, I'm talking about infertility and childlessness. It's a theme in this passage, infertility and childlessness. It's a big problem, and I have to say it's getting worse in our world. Fertility rates are going down for a whole variety of reasons. First, you've got the usual medical problems. I mean, physical things that just make it hard for some people to fall pregnant. Then you've got the environmental factors like stress at work, chemicals in the food, not enough exercise, things like that. So you've got medical issues, you've got environmental factors, you've got sociological issues like the cost of living or the impact of the internet. Remember a few weeks ago I was talking about the impact of the internet in Japan. Uh, The fertility and conception rates have plunged. Uh, uh, Japan's going backwards. Its population is in decline. Cost of living, impact of the internet, prioritising professional careers over motherhood, abortion, all these things. And on top of all that then you've got to add the range of modern day ethical issues like the dangers of playing God by using scientific methods. Or like Sarai, the temptation of taking matters into your own hands to make a baby by whatever means possible. I want to ask the question, should a Christian woman use a sperm bank? Should a Christian couple hire a surrogate mother? These are real questions and people will have different decisions, but not all of them are godly. I think some fertility options can be left up to Christian conscience, but many of these options are clearly wrong. So I hope you'll stick with me today as as we look at Sarai's folly and Hagar's hardship and then Ishmael's birth. In Genesis chapter 16, God's word is going to teach us an important ethical lesson, which is that quick fix solutions are generally not pleasing to God. We must avoid the temptation of impatience, which so easily leads us into sinful choices and foolish behaviour. Let me say that again. We must avoid the temptation of impatience, which so easily leads us into sinful choices. And foolish behaviour. I look around the room, it's amazing how many people have got their hands on their mouths at the moment. I wonder, thinking about these issues really does confront us, doesn't it, at a personal level? What is God saying to us today? Well, let's start with Sarai's folly. This is my first point for this morning Sarai's folly and Abram's acquiescence. I want to read from verse 1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, infertility, can't have babies. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Sarai has just come up with a very pragmatic solution to her own infertility. But she has to do some incredible mental gymnastics to arrive at the answer. First, she justifies herself by arguing that really it's all God's fault. Did you see? The Lord has kept me from having children, she says in verse 2. I'm the victim here. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. The Lord has kept me from having children. And Then she rationalizes that Hagar, after all, is only a slave girl, not a free woman. And she's an Egyptian, not a Hebrew like me. What other choice do I have then but to use Hagar's womb instead of mine after all she is my maidservant right she belongs to me so she said to Abram her husband go sleep with my maidservant perhaps i can build a family through her she wants to rent Hagar's womb Most women, I think, do have deep inner longings to be married and to be mothers. Certainly the case for Swathar, I know it's a generalisation, but we went through this whole pain of childlessness. We tried various IVF measures as well, and yet God's answer to us ultimately was no, not going to give you kids, Uh, but we ended up, he gave us many children in the Lord, so we rejoice in that. But many women, I know it's a generalisation, but most women, I think, do yearn to settle down and have kids if their own, if at all possible. This was certainly true of Abram and Sarai. But that's not all, is it? We know, and we saw it in the kids' talk as well. God made promises to Abram, strong promises of offspring like stars in the sky and a land for them to dwell in. And yet here he is, still childless, old enough to be a grandfather, even a great-grandfather, And yet still, no children. Maybe he thought that his offspring would come from an adopted son, a servant named Eliezer of Damascus. But God said, no, Abram, no, your offspring will come from your own loins. This is my promise to you. But as the years passed, Sarai's pain of childlessness grew and grew and grew. With every passing month, it became an increasing test of her faith and of her patience with God. How long must we wait for God to keep his promises? Let's backtrack a little bit. In Egypt, remember, Abraham became a wealthy man. And among his possessions, we're not told this definitely, but possibly, even probably, Hagar was a slave girl, an Egyptian slave girl, who was received at that time into Abram's household. Remember, Sarai had nearly become Pharaoh's wife in Egypt, so it is possible that even Pharaoh might have been the one who gave Hagar to Sarai at this time to be her maidservant. And with this, in any case, Sarai begins to get a new idea about how to become a mother. Until now, we, and probably she, had always assumed that it would be Sarai herself who would become the mother of Abram's child. But if you look carefully at God's promises to Abram in Genesis 15, you'll see that God says nothing about the identity of the child's mother. That's not part of the promise. It's not mentioned. And this must have been on Sarai's mind. As she grows older and as every month passes, she begins to ask, what if I'm not to be the mother of Abram's offspring, at least not the birth mother? How can I still claim the rights of parenthood and retain my place in the promises? And by this logic, Sarai arrives at a radical solution. Since God has left me infertile and God has given me a maidservant, why don't I use Hagar's womb in place of mine? I'll give God a push. I'll give God a push. And she said to Abram, her her husband, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And this is Sarai's solution to her childlessness. And at the end of verse 2, we're simply told, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. He agreed. He listened to his wife's voice just as Adam listened to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Abram acquiesced with Sarai just as Adam acquiesced with Eve. Just as Adam received from Eve the forbidden fruit, so a- Abram now receives a second wife from Sarai. You see, this is the story of the Garden of Eden all over again in the life of Abram and Sarai. It is the, s- the sin, I guess, of Sar- Sarai's folly and Abram's acquiescence. They're back in the garden and the forbidden fruit is there. Can we shortcut this? Has God really given us all that we need? Can we trust His promises? Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Abram and Adam ought to have said no to their wives No, this is not the way. Don't rush God, be patient. He will deliver on his promises in his time. Trust in the Lord as he has taught us to do. They should have said no. If these men loved their wives as they ought, our world would be a different place today. It's a failure in male leadership. So we're told in verse 3, after Abram had been in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, note his, his words, Sarai his wife, Notice the emphasis, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. So his wife gives another woman to her husband to be his wife. Like I said before, how do you think this is going to turn out? Now that the seed of this sin has been planted, we don't need to wait very long to see the fruit of the misery it will cause. To start with, everything seems to be going along just swimmingly. Everything looks fine. Hagar falls pregnant to Abram, just as Sarai had hoped. Yes, I'm going to be a mum through Hagar's womb. Her plans for motherhood are going well. But before you know it, there are problems on the horizon. Number one, rivalry between Abram's wives. Because at one level, Hagar is still Sarai's maidservant. This is a weird relationship which Abram never really challenges. Hagar is both at the same time, Abram's wife and Sarai's slave girl. Figure that one out if you can. The dynamics of this relationship... Complicated. And when Hagar sees, wow, I've fallen pregnant to Abram, suddenly Sarai's situation changes, as you can imagine. One woman with a child, the other woman without. And now Hagar must be thinking to herself, God has blessed me, the slave girl, with a child for my master, but my mistress is childless and seemingly under God's curse. I've got the baby. Not her. And where does this leave Sarai? Well, aside from the mental turmoil of having given her own husband to a younger woman to sleep with and... Seeing how easily she fell pregnant, now Sarai also has to deal with the emotional anguish, surely, of feeling cursed by God, unable to fall pregnant. And on top of that, now despised by her own servant, for Hagar does now get a little pride, becomes a bit rebellious against Sarai. And now Sarai is more miserable than ever, still childless. Can she hold on to Abram? What will her husband do? And now in verse 5, there's another serious consequence of Sarai's folly. You can see the dominoes starting to fall because now we have marital strife between Sarai and Abram. In her despair and anguish, she blames Abram for the whole mess. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. In effect, Sarai is saying to Abram, her husband, why did you listen to me? You stupid man. What did you think you were doing, letting me Give my maidservant to you. It's all your fault. And I have to say, she's kind of right. She's kind of right. Abram should have known better. He took the fruit, the young, fertile woman, to embrace in his own arms. I believe Abram knew deep down that Hagar was not to be the mother. It just, it's not said there, it just seems inevitable to me. He, he must surely have suspected that God's promise would come through Sarai. It seems to me that his acquiescence with Sarai was a failure on his part as a, of a, as a man of God who should have trusted in God's promises but didn't, again. Because some things can't be rushed. Impatience with God often leads us to make sinful choices. And now there is a third consequence to Sarai's folly that affects everyone who is engaged in this complicated domestic arrangement. In verse 6, we read, Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do to her whatever you think best. And then notice Sarai ill-treated or mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Domestic violence is now added on top of everything else. What a mess. I bet Sarai would never have taken this path if she knew even a tenth of the pain that it would cause. But instead of repenting of her sin, she actually doubles down. She takes out her revenge, On the most vulnerable and the very pregnant, Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant. She lashes out at Hagar. What should Abram have done? This is an ethical minefield, this passage, isn't it? What should Abram have done? Surely he should have dealt with this, shouldn't he? He He should have been the one now at least to provide and protect his second wife, Hagar. But instead of that, he seems to wash his hands of the whole sordid affair. And isn't that just like when we sin? We want to ignore our sins. We want to avoid the consequences. We really don't like accepting responsibility for the things we've done. We try to sweep it under the carpet and let those that we've hurt suffer for our neglect. He doesn't want to deal with it. Because he himself is part of the problem. And I have to ask myself, is this the same Abram who is supposed to be such a figurehead of faithfulness? Because he sure doesn't look like it to me at the moment. He's caught up with Sarai in an episode of faithlessness brought on by impatience with God. So what advice would you give to Abram and his family if you were their pastor today? This would be a nightmare one to deal with, wouldn't it? Thankfully, we don't have to. God himself now intervenes. The pastor of his sheep. And so I come to my second point, which I've called Hagar's hardship, verses 7 to 14. Abram should have done something to care for Hagar. He should have stepped in and assured her of his support. But because he's avoiding the consequences of his own sins, he does nothing, he hands it back over to Sarai and allows Sarai to mistreat his own wife, Hagar. Compare that to what the Lord does in response, the one who sees the plight of the abused and the forsaken. He comes in a visible form as the angel of the Lord to comfort Hagar in her abandonment So in verse 7 we read, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? The first thing God does is to comfort the broken-hearted Hagar. And notice the really first thing he does is to call her by name. He calls her Hagar. This is important, it seems to me, because up until now, neither Abram nor Sarai have called Hagar by name. In verse 2, Sarai calls her my maidservant. And again in verse 5, my servant. Abram does the same thing in verse 6. He says to Sarai, your servant is in your hands. Why doesn't he say Hagar, my wife, is in your hands? No, your servant is in your hands. But when the Lord speaks to Hagar, he calls her by name. He treats her with dignity and respect. He treats her, in fact, as a person. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? God treats Hagar as a person. He puts her at ease. He speaks to her gently. He listens to her story. And so Hagar finds in the Lord a comforter for her soul. In fact, in the providence of God, these circumstances, it seems to me, lead to the salvation of Hagar. Through these awful consequences of all the mess, God is there at the critical moment. For now Hagar knows that her plight has not gone unnoticed. There is a God who sees. There is a God who hears. There is a God who calls her by name. And this is true for you and for me as well. Whatever hardships you are going through in life, others may ignore you, others may mistreat you, others may abuse you, but never forget that our God is the living God who sees and knows And cares. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. As well she might. Hagar has no particular plan beyond the plan to escape from her oppression. Possibly she's trying to make it back to Egypt because the road to Shur is on the way to Egypt. But having run away, she's faced with all these practical questions. How will I support my child? Can I really do it by myself as a single mother? The answer is, in that world, probably not. Hard enough in our world. So God speaks to her, giving her the counsel that she needs at this very difficult time in her life. First, he comforts her as a mother, and then he prophesies about the son that she will bear. He will be called Ishmael, which means God hears. But first, he says to her, you must bide your time with Sarai. It won't be easy, but trust me in this. Verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The same kind of promise that God gave to Abram, he now gives to Hagar. A promise of many descendants, too numerous to count, comes to this abandoned slave girl whose life really was abused by Sarai and Abram. But it's not easy to accept advice you don't want to hear, is it? I don't think it was easy for Hagar to go back to Sarai and submit to her. But Hagar did it because she trusted in the Lord. Because God gave her promises. Because God is the God who sees and the God who hears. It took faith on Hagar's part to go back. When you've been mistreated, isn't it easier to treat others in the way that they have treated you, to write them off? But the Bible doesn't tell us to do that. In fact, the Bible says to treat others in the way we would, be want, to, we would want to be treated if we were them. And that's a very hard thing to do. It's never been popular advice But it is God's advice. Can you hear the objections? But it's not fair. No, it might not be fair. But I'll be mistreated. Yes, you might be. But you don't understand how hard it is. Well, it's not about being easy or hard. It's about being right. For when we do what is right in God's sight, even when it's hard... The living God sees, the living God notices, the living God blesses. Just as he blesses Hagar here in our passage today. And she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her that day. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beelahai Roy. It's still there today between Kadesh and Bered. God deals kindly with Hagar, and she trusts in him, and she goes home. As for Ishmael, his story is significant for us today because, as I said earlier, of the Islamic religion. Even though Islam didn't start until around 610 AD, That's a long way after Christ, 610 AD. Muslims, however, claim Ishmael as their spiritual father. So my last point for today is about Ishmael's birth. In verse 12, the Bible says of Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man. What a description. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. And that's pretty much how things have turned out to this very day. Muslims claim that God promised the land to Ishmael and that the Jews stole it from him and that the Bible is a Jewish lie. That's why there is still such a great struggle between the Arabs and the Jews. It's an ancient family feud that began in the days of Sarai's folly and Abram's acquiescence. And it's a feud that still affects us today, especially in the politics of the Middle East. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. 86. Who's 86? (laughs) Or older? Oh, one. Okay. Off you go. So Abram has two families now, two wives and two families, but only one son. Sarai's hope of becoming a mother by using Hagar as a substitute womb has gone terribly wrong because Hagar is a young woman with her own hopes and dreams and a faith of her own now in the living God who hears her, who sees her, and that is why the place was called Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living God who sees me. Lahai Roy, the well of the living God who sees me. And now too we see at last Abram taking some responsibility as a father for his wife, And new child. Where do we see this? Well, it can be seen in the fact that we're now back on a first name basis with Hagar and Ishmael. So in verse 15, Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Hagar's got her name back. All in all, Genesis 16 is an unhappy detour in the main storyline of God's people, but we're always getting by, sidetracked by sin. This is one of these sidetracked stories. Sarai made some very big mistakes when she tried to give God a push to deliver on the promises just made to Abram in the chapter before. And Abram also makes some very big mistakes by allowing her to do it. In his compliance with Sarai, he fractured his own family by by the folly. And the Bible, wonderful that God's word is so true. The Bible never hides the truth. All these messy details are here for us to learn from. That we might surrender our lives to this living God who sees us. Today's story magnifies the power of God's grace towards sinners like us, toward you and me and all the skeletons in the closets of our lives. Well, they're here today too. And yet God's promises and God's purposes are not defeated because he is the living God who cares for us. So the moral of this story is don't be like the foolish farmer who pulled up his own crops. Don't be impatient with God. In answer to the question, how long must I wait for God to deliver on his promises? The answer is, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. Don't be impatient with God. Surrender to him. Trust him. So in conclusion, there are three things that stand out for me as lessons we can learn today from the events leading up to the birth of Abram's firstborn son, Ishmael. Three things. Lesson one, impatience with God leads to bad, faithless decisions, just as we see here. It's not wise to try to rush God's plans. Instead, as I said, trust in the Lord and his unfailing love. Wait upon him. Be patient and indeed be urgent in prayer, trusting that he will answer you in his perfect timing. Lesson two. It is no surprise that sexual sin leads to marital strife. I don't think I need to add any further explanation there. You go down that path, you end up in tears. That's lesson two. Lesson three, surrogacy is not God's solution for childlessness. Adoption is, I would suggest, Modern medicine has made it possible to offer childless couples who would never have been able to conceive a child the hope of starting a new family. We are in a Sarah Abram moment in our world. There are so many options to choose from these days. But just remember, it's run as a business by hospitals who want to make money. They don't care about Christian ethics. You need to. So I warn you, it is an ethical minefield out there. My best advice is to remember this. Remember that every human life begins at conception. Every human life begins at conception. Every embryo is a precious human being, not a lab experiment, but a person created in the image of God. So don't just take the word of the doctor who will try to give you an economic case and a best outcome case that might Mean aborting fetuses, um, doing uh, statistical get the maximum number of eggs you can, and then uh, flush the rest. No, this is this is not the way to approach childlessness. Every embryo is a precious human being. Do your research and be sure you keep within the bounds of God's moral law at all times. And I might add to that: listen to your conscience. Is it okay for a Christian woman to use a sperm bank? No, because it introduces a third person's DNA into the marriage. Can God redeem you from that? Of course he can. But you need to repent of your sin. Should a Christian couple hire a surrogate mother? Well, after we've seen today, do you think it's a good idea? Do you want to go down that path? I suggest it's not wise. You've seen the mess that it made of Abram and Sarai's family. Surrogacy is not the answer, adoption is. The tragedy of abortion is that it kills the child who might have been God's answer to a childless couple. Our society has become a culture of death instead of a, a culture of redemption, redeeming people's brokenness but saving life. Remember that God is able to bring good out of our folly and redeem the messes that we make He's able to do it because he's the living God who sees us and cares for us, just as he cared for Hagar. It's true that sometimes God's answer will be no, just as God answered Swathar and me with no. You've got to be at peace with that. You've got to trust God. Don't be like the impatient farmer who pulled up his own crops with his own hands in a bid to make them grow faster. That's the kind of thing that ends in tears. No, what God has promised, he will surely do in his perfect timing. But our job is to wait patiently upon him for that day. Just as Jesus said, yes, I'm coming soon. Let us be patient and wait for our king to return. Let's pray. Ah, Dear Heavenly Father, we cry out to you because... Probably every one of us here in one way or another has been touched by this story of childlessness, of impatience with God, of sexual sin, of the shame when things go wrong and we can't restore what's been lost. And yet you are the God who hears. You are the God who sees. And in our brokenness, you reach out and claim us by name. You give us hope and you restore us again. Oh, Lord, please do that. For each hurting and breaking heart here today, pour out your gift of grace and comfort upon them and show them your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let's uh, finish today with our response song. Thank you, Sarah. We're going to have a good old hymn.